Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. I've had the privilege twice before to welcome J.E. McNeil to my program, and this time is a special honor, what with the recent release of her book, Peacework Quilt, and her transition from her 12-year post as Executive Director of the Center on Conscience and War. J.E.'s book and life are filled with nitty-gritty, real-life stories of peacework and conscience objectors on the ground, in the military, and around it. J.E. tells it like it is bring in heart, sympathy, courage, and truth to all that she looks at, avoiding easy side-taking and propaganda. If you've ever told or laughed at a joke about lawyers, J.E. McNeil will give you good reason to repent of the stereotype, showing integrity and spiritual depth as good as any we could hope for. Here today for Spirit in Action to discuss the book Peacework Quilt and many other stories of COs and the Center on Conscience and More is J.E. McNeil joining us from Washington, D.C. J.E., welcome back for the third time to Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for having me back. I can't believe it's the third time, but I'm always happy to talk with you. Can't believe it's the third time after 12 years at the Center on Conscience and War. I should have had you on a dozen more times. You're at such an important point to address the concerns of those of us who believe that a good connection with spirit involves not fighting war. Tell me a little bit again about how you got to where you are, because I think you didn't grow up in an environment that was conducive to conscience subjectors. It wasn't totally non-conducive. I grew up in a family that was out of step a good bit with the Texas surrounding. My family were liberal Democrats in an area of the city of Houston that were all conservative Democrats in those days. So we were considered a bit odd. We had lots of reading, whereas most of my neighbors, the only book they had in their house, if they had one, was the Bible. I think a lot of what led me to where I was was sort of a very gradual realization piece by piece that a war was wrong, the war in Vietnam war was wrong. And then I felt later as I grew older that all wars were evil, but sometimes useful and practical. My mother always said that war was a necessary evil. That was sort of her bottom line, but it was quite clear they were evil. And then it wasn't really until I was in my 40s, amazingly enough, but I think it's important for people to know that. But I concluded that war was not only evil, but it was just stupid. Fortunately, a short time after I concluded that, I was offered the job at the Center on Conscience and War. Let's fill in a little bit of the history that got you to that point in your 40s when you decided that there's no good in it. You mention in your book, Peacework Quilt, that you had an experience in ninth grade that started turning your mind. Uh, you said you were the last one in your family to realize that the Vietnam War was a loser. 
Yeah, I always felt that I was the last one. When I got older, I understood I was the last one in my family because I was the youngest one. But in junior high, as the youngest of five kids, all of whom were destined to go to college, which, again, was kind of out of step with my neighborhood, I started worrying about where my parents, who my mother was a teacher and my daddy was a machinist, where they were going to get the money to send me to college. That was when college was still affordable. And so I had decided that I would join the military to go through college, and I was pretty much decided on becoming a Marine. But in the ninth grade, I had a history teacher who had us have a debate, and there were different topics. But the topic she gave me and another one to person to debate was whether or not it was right that we were in the war in Vietnam. And this was about, I don't know, 1964, I guess, 65 in that area. The kid I was debating his brother was a Marine. So when we were deciding who got which side of the topic, rather than drawing lots, he said that he had to have the right side, which we both understood to mean that he was going to support the war in Vietnam. And I was going to take the losing side, which was that the war in Vietnam was wrong and we shouldn't be there. You know, I we did the whole debate thing. And, and I it's really one of my great tactile memories in life is just almost having sat down and suddenly going, well, dang, we shouldn't be in Vietnam. I often tell people about this story because I think a lot of people have this notion that, well, you either grow up believing that war is wrong and evil or, or you don't. The reality is, and I think it's important to understand this, that it's, for most people, it's a process. And sometimes that process, unfortunately, begins when they're in the military. Other times that process, if they're lucky like I was, it begins when they're younger. So I concluded at that point that I could not join the Marines. Well, this new book, Piecework Quilt, you capture a lot of moments along the way, both personally and in your work with the Center on Conscience and War. Can you give us a few vignettes of some of the people you've met with who've come to the decision that participation in war is simply wrong, simply wrong for them? A lot of the people I think you've been dealing with have been people in the military who decided they need to get out. Well, one of my favorite stories about a guy who chose against war was an African-American from Philadelphia. He was just as young and tough and, you know, like to beat people up kind of a guy. So he joined the Marines during Vietnam because he figured, here's an opportunity for me to beat people up and kill people, and it's okay. You know, it's an honor even. And he was in Vietnam in a bar in Saigon. And at the bar was another Marine, and they got they both drank too much and got into a fight. And he was really good at being young and tough, and he almost killed the other person. But the problem was is the other person was white. So he got arrested and was sitting in jail waiting to hear whether or not the other man died. Uh, while he was sitting in jail waiting in many respects for his fate, whether or not this other man died, he started thinking about what his mother would be feeling, especially if the roles were reversed, if it was a white guy that had beaten him up nearly to death. And he had an epiphany at that moment. And at that moment, he realized that it was wrong to kill. And he, he really, he just—he basically converted to what he saw as Christianity, which was following Jesus' admonition to love his enemy. 
as it turned out, the other guy did not die. The young African-American guy finished out his term in the Marines and left them and stumbled across the Mennonites when he went back to Philadelphia and found a church home for where he was in his life, that his opposition to war and his clear understanding that killing was wrong. He did tell me once that he went back to the guy he had beaten and apologized to him, and he said that the guy looked at him like he'd grown a second head, didn't know what he was talking about in the sense of why would he apologize, you know? But he really, his life completely changed and turned around, and he, he spent, as long as I've known him, which is a lot of years now, he has spent his life helping young people understand that war and violence is wrong. You must have run into him somewhere along the way. I read the chair of your board for the Center on Conscience and War. He was a soldier who came to the center and ended up speaking to you. He came for guidance. I believe the name's Dallas, and now he is the chair of the board. Yeah, we've actually had several people over the years that I've been at the center go from being in the military to working at the center or working on the board. Dallas is one of them. He's just a lovely guy, and it it just baffles me how he would ever be able to kill anyone because he's just the sweetest man you could ever want to know. But, yes, he has a fairly typical story in some respects in that he saw the military as a route to get an education, and especially before 2001, that was a very common scenario. People didn't really think about joining the military because it was about fighting. They thought about it as getting an education. It was later, as things changed, that he, he realized that the cost of the education was too high if he was ever called to fight, that he was going to refuse. But fortunately, he didn't end up with quite that confrontational of a situation. Other people's stories are not nearly so happy. I, I remember for a long time, I would get a phone call once a week, a 15-minute phone call from a guy who didn't have a cell phone, so he couldn't call back, so he was in Fallujah, and he could make his once-a-week 15-minute call. He would call the center, and I would just like, drop everything to talk to him. He would relate about how he had come to have a change of heart and how he was pushing forward and his uh, conscientious objector uh, package and how he was being treated. I mean, he was, he was basically being treated really horribly by his fellow Marines, and they would, you know, sneak into his tent at night and attack him, and he wasn't sleeping well, and he was just really ill with all the worry and the harassment. But he would call me every week, and I remember, you know, hanging up from him one time and thinking, that man's going to go kill himself, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I didn't hear from him again for a couple of months. And I finally heard from him about three months later, and I was so glad because it meant he hadn't killed himself. And I just, you know, I had worried about him every day since I had hung up from that call. And he had actually, a short time after I had talked to him on that call, been sent back stateside and given leave and he called me because he was about to return to the marine base and he said you know i i just don't know what to do every time i pick up my uniform to put it on my hands shake so badly that the uniform just flies out of my hands and i can't get it on wow is that one of the extreme stories or is this kind of typical since the war started since afghanistan and iraq It's almost impossible to say what's typical, but no, I I wouldn't want to leave the picture that every person who applied for conscientious objector discharge was harassed to the point of near suicidal position. I would say he's pretty much the exception. It's not like all of them are greeted warmly, but most of them aren't horribly harassed. And some of them are actually 
we we got a call from a sergeant in Afghanistan once who called us and said that he had this guy who was a private who was clearly a conscientious objector, but neither one of them knew what to do and would we help him. So, you know, there are situations where people are recognized as being the conscience of the director that something changed them and their fellow soldiers and Marines and sailors help them go through the process or try to find ways to support them so that they can get the discharge which they are legally entitled to. I think you also end up helping a lot of people who feel that the military system wronged them, not necessarily that they're conscience objectors, but their concern is with the system. At certain points over the past few years, there's been concerns about the military recruiters, and you have a story in Piecework Quilt about one of those recruiters that you had an interaction with. What's your feeling about military recruiters? Are they adversaries? They're just doing their jobs. Are they victims of their situation, propaganda? What do you feel about the military recruiters? Well, military recruiters probably have the worst job in the military. They have the longest hours of anybody except somebody maybe in a combat zone under direct fire. They uh, are given a mission, and most people would think of a mission as a quota, but it's really slightly different. But they're given a mission, a certain number of people to recruit, I've seen studies that show that it takes contact with 300 individuals to get one potential recruit. So think of yourself, you're 25 years old and possibly back from combat, which is not an uncommon scenario, and you are now told to go get, you know, our 20 young men and women and recruit them into your branch of the service. So let's say it's even 20, that means you have to meet, talk to, interact with 6,000 young people to meet your mission, and you have to go where the young people are. So you go to schools, you go to video places, you go to malls, you go to hamburger joints. You go everywhere you can, and if you go when the when the kids are there. And the kids are there in the evenings and on the weekends, and you're there on the, you know. It's a, a job that I've had recruiters actually call the center and say, you know, my wife is going to leave me because I'm recruiting seven days a week and 12 and 18 hours a day to meet the mission, and I don't know what to do. So it's a really it's a really tough job. On the other hand, even though the written words tell them not to lie, they are also trained very much in target marketing so that they know that if they go to a Hispanic neighborhood, they say one thing. If they go to an upper-middle-class suburban neighborhood, they say something else. If they go to a, a poor rural neighborhood, they say something else. They, they target their recruiting. They target what they recruit the people for. And, you know, I've given public speeches over the years, and at most of them I will tell the military joke of how do you know when a recruiter's lying, and, and the answer is when he moves his mouth. Every time I've done that in public, I always sort of almost internally wince because I think somebody's going to say, oh, how dare you say that. But invariably, if there's anybody in the military in the audience, they come up and see me afterwards and say, oh, you're way too nice to the recruiter. I mean, I've talked to lots of people in the military and made that remark, and they've all laughed and said, yes, that's right. I mean, people who love the military would say that. And that's kind of a sad story that the pressure on these men and women is so great that they feel like they have to lie to get people in. And it's on them so great that the suicide rate on recruiters is one of the highest suicide rates in the military. Two things I wanted to mention about that, J.E. One is that you have a story in Piecework Quilt 
where you talk about, I think, a, a better or more forthright discussion with a military recruiter. I do hope people read this. It's a This book is a quick read. But also, I think just this past week, I heard about the statistics. I, I saw a graph of the amount of suicides in the military. And I think it's at its highest point since we invaded Afghanistan. How much do you end up dealing with this or encountering this? At the center, we do talk to people who are, are suicidal, and we try to refer them immediately to psychological counseling. There are a group of counselors who you can only get to through the GI rights hotline, and we refer them on. And I have talked to more than one person that I, that I feared was likely to kill themselves. The suicide rate in the military has always been fairly high. It has been, even at the beginning of war, the number one cause of death in the military absent combat death. And it doesn't even count the people who get so blindingly drunk that they run the car into the river. Or it wouldn't count, for instance, the guy outside of Washington, D.C., I guess it must have been eight years ago now, when he got the notice that he was supposed to report again to be deployed, got a got a weapon and, you know, basically set up a uh, death by police officer situation. It's tragic, and I think it should tell us something about what it is we're asking these men and women to do, that the suicide rate is so high. In fact, the VA has, in the last, I think, four or five years, adopted a new medical concept called moral injury, which is different from post-traumatic stress disorder. You can have post-traumatic stress disorder where something bad happens to you and you do nothing bad yourself. That can happen to lots of people in the military. Standing there watching a friend blow up in front of you can give you post-traumatic stress disorder. Standing in a building and have it you know, blow up and fall on your head can give you post-traumatic stress disorder and brain trauma injury. But what moral injury is, which is recognized by the Veterans Administration, is that you go into the military with most of us have learned from childhood that killing people is wrong. You know? We've been taught to use words instead of our hands, not to use violence. And then you go into the military and they say, oh, yeah, but there's this exception. I've heard story after story, including stories from people who, once again, are very proud and happy to be in the military. But they talk about the change in their soul and this killed someone. I was at a meeting with Camilo Mejia, who's a reasonably well-known uh, conscientious objector, and he told the story that he's told on a, a number of occasions about being up on a balcony, a roof, looking down, and that there were some civilians throwing rocks at them, but they were really far away and, and weren't anywhere close. But this one young boy came in a little closer, and it looked like he might have a hand grenade, and although the boy probably wouldn't have been able to throw it close enough to the building, that Camilo's next memory was that his his weapon had been fired and that people were running up to drag the body of the boy away. And he was at the conference where he talked about moral injury, and he, he had been talking about his own post-traumatic stress disorder, and he heard the description of moral injury, and he said, yes, I've never heard that before, but yes, that's, that's part of it. I've done something that, that hurts me personally and in my moral and in his soul. And that's a very sad, sad thing to say.
I figure that most of the people you meet with, J.E., are in the military. That may surprise people because I have a feeling there's a general myth out there that anyone who wants to get out of the military, it's a scam. They they had their bread buttered and now they're just getting out because they don't want to do the real work. Have you had that impression? Are there scammers who come through your door you talk to? Or maybe um, that just isn't a judgment you're prepared to make or is the judgment that society sometimes puts on people who come to a clearness that military is the wrong place for them to be, religiously, spiritually, is that what is most often wrong? I'm enough of a realist that I would never say that, no, there's never been a scammer who just decided he wanted to make more money, I mean, someplace else, or he didn't want to do the dirty work or whatever. I mean, that certainly... We had somebody come into our door and file a conscientious objector application, and I, I read it, and it seemed pretty good. And I turned to my colleague, and I said, read this application. It's really a good one. He read it, and he said, yeah, I've read it before. He's copied so-and-so's conscientious objector application. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt and wrote him a note saying, you know, you need to have your conscientious objector application in your own words. He sent it back, and he, he like, changed three words, at which point we wrote him a note saying, you know, we're not going to help somebody lie to get out. <laughs> That's not what we're about. We're, we're about people who we, to the best of our ability, tell has, has really had a change of heart. And so uh, we refuse to help him. I'm often asked if we've ever refused people. And it doesn't happen often because mostly we're willing to give people a benefit of the doubt because even if sometimes they can't articulate what they've been going through. I mean, I talked to a you know, well-known cartoonist who was a conscientious objector in Vietnam, and I, and I asked him to tell his story for the center's newsletter, and he said, that's a very personal story. And it is. It's a very hard story to tell because you're, you're not just talking about, you know, I, I went down this road and I did this and I did that. You're talking about your guts. You're talking about your soul. You're talking about the essence of you. And sometimes it's so hard that I can think of a couple of guys that I helped with their CO applications. And their applications were okay, but it was only like two years after they had gotten out of the military and I had known them and continued to work with them on, or socialized or whatever with them for two more years that I heard the real story, the story that they couldn't bear to write down, the story they couldn't bear to tell about the damaging things they had seen and done, that they couldn't bear to share us. It took them years after. So their initial application might have seen, you know, it was a good application. It was clear the guy had had a change of heart. But it was also clear something, there was more there to it. And it was just a description of, I went to this place, and while there, it changed me. But never a real discussion of what it was that he saw or felt precisely. Just You know, I saw things that I thought were evil, and it changed my heart, and... I came back and I started writing my CO application. And then, like like I said, it took two years of healing after they got out to come to the point of saying the evil they saw. You're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, of this Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On the website, you'll find all of our archives of the last six years, links to our guests, like today's guest, J.E. McNeil of the Center on Conscience and War. Their website is centeronconscience.org, or you can follow the link from my site. You can also leave comments, and I especially appreciate comments 
like to hear what you're thinking, reacting, what you like, what helps lead you to the deep places, because that's what this show is intended to be about, not just sound bites, not just a recitation of facts, but where is the deep space that these concerns come from. As I said again, we're visiting with J.E. McNeil. She served for 12 years as the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, amongst other things, and I want to ask you about that in a moment, J.E. They help conscientious objectors, either before they go in the military or after they get in the military. She's done trainings all across this nation, and I imagine beyond. One of the things that's kind of unusual for you in terms of a peace worker, often there's a divide, J.E., between those who are protesting war and those in the military. They don't really interact too much. But I think you have a lot of contact, connection, interaction with people in the military. Can you talk about how that changes your perspective compared to maybe your typical on-the-street war protester? Yeah, I've had many very unfortunate conversations with peace people about some of the work I do. One of the things we did at the center was we supported a group called um, the Appeal for Redress, which was mainly professional military personnel, people who were proud of their job in the United States military, but they opposed the war in Iraq, and they wanted to speak to Congress and to the country about their opposition to the war in Iraq, but not confuse that with broader opposition to war in general. And they were also really clear that their job was the military, and if they were ordered to Iraq, even though they thought the war was wrong, they would go, and they would do their job, because it was their job, and they felt very loyal to that. And we supported them, and they they were on 60 Minutes, and they went to Congress, and they got into Congressional Record, and I got a phone call and a couple of notes from people saying, you know, how can you support those murderers? I'm never going to give you any money again. And I said, you know, the center... And I personally support anyone who says no to war at any level because we are not all in the same place. And this is, to me, the most important legacy, if I leave any legacy, is the concept that conscientious objection is not this one point where it's defined by the federal government that you must moral, ethically, or religiously have a sincere belief in your own participation in war in any form. I mean, that's that's one point on a line. But there are people who they don't want to participate in the form of paying taxes, for example, that they feel that that's participation. Well, that's a different point on the line. And there are people who don't want to participate in particular wars or who object to particular wars, just like when I was in the ninth grade and 10th and 11th in college. I objected to the war in Vietnam. I didn't object to all wars. There are also people who object to wars but are still willing to do what they consider their job. And I think it's wise of us to reach our hands in both directions along the the line, the continuum of conscientious objection. Not only because it makes us stronger, because in fact, there's probably no one on earth who at some point doesn't object to some war somewhere, but because it helps people move along that continuum. I mean, I started from objecting to the war in Vietnam to thinking war was evil but still expedient to eventually coming to the conclusion that war was not even expedient. One of the young men from the Appeal for Redress, we had dinner together one night at a restaurant, and he was saying, well, you know, it is so hard to go to restaurants because I'm a vegan. And I actually, I pretty much dropped my jaw, and I said, I'm sorry, 
you won't kill animals, but you'll kill people. And he had a funny look on his face. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Forget I said anything. And we continued our conversation about other stuff. But about two years later, he applied for a conscientious objector discharge in the military. You know, he finally made that connection. So, I mean, I think when you start closing doors on people, saying, oh, no, you're not pure enough, well, that's, you know, the the perfect is the enemy of the good. Again, we're speaking with Jay McNeil, amongst other things, after 12 years of service to our nation, to our world, I think, with the Center on Conscience and War. She's finally moved on from that position, and part of the fruits of that work have been a book she's just produced called Peace Work Quilt, and that's peace as in not war, work quilt. You'll find a link on northernspiritradio.org. We're visiting with her out in Washington, where she's resident, has been for quite a while. She's had a number of careers over the year, I think. I don't think you've chosen the most lucrative area to go into, J.E. I mean, I think as an attorney, you could have made better money elsewhere. What was it that pushed you in this direction? Why didn't you go more lucrative? What was that path like for you? That's actually a very difficult question to answer. When I graduated college, the one thing I was sure of is that I didn't want to be an attorney. So I ended up spending a summer as an intern in Congress. In fact, hung out with, with Charlie Wilson of Charlie's War, because uh, I was from Texas, too. And then I was trying to figure out a job, and I got a job as a paralegal, which I was really happy to do for a while. I was really kind of content being the second banana in a law firm. But the job just got narrower and narrower, and I, I got discontent and decided, well, I guess I'll go to law school after all. And while I was in law school, I couldn't find any area of law that really called to me except tax law. And there didn't seem to be much of a space for tax law as a liberal. But I stumbled into it, and I said, well, all right, well, then what I'll do is I'll represent low-income taxpayers. I'll just figure out a way to make a living at that, and I'll represent some nonprofits, too. And that's what I did for quite a while. And I started my law practice in Washington, D.C., where I live now. And that was when I uh, stumbled upon Quakers sort of a second time in my life. You know, the first time I went to the Quaker meeting in Washington, D.C., it was just, it was heaven. You know how it is when you've been on a long long road trip and you come back to your house and you lie down in your own bed, that feeling you get of, ah, I'm home, it's my bed. It was that kind of a feeling. And uh, I just was completely enraptured by the Religious Society of Friends and and am still today, even though now I know all of its warts and and problems, but I still, it still speaks to my condition, as we say in Quaker. And that really just, I was lucky in my choice of husband. Rick was just a wonderful man, and he uh, was a terrific criminal trial attorney, and he was willing to go out and kind of earn the bread and butter while I uh, spent a lot of time on boards and committees and still practicing law and still trying to do the good work. I remember him coming home once and getting a nice fat paycheck from a case that he had he'd finally completed and him saying, you know, I earned the money so you can go represent both of us doing the good work. I was blessed by him. Yeah, it's fortunate to have that kind of situation. I know that you were raised Methodist. Did your drifting away from being a Methodist 
did that have to do with things about the war? Were there other factors? Could you be a Methodist now? I mean, where your beliefs are now? No, I actually left the Methodist Church long before I found friends. I left the Methodist Church while I was in college. There were several factors. Part of it was because the Methodist Church, as I knew it in Texas, I felt did not follow Jesus' admonition to love your neighbor because they were very supportive of the war in Vietnam. I later found out that George Will, who was a Methodist, who was a conscientious objector during World War II, which is a fabulous guy, and but the Methodist Church actually was very anti-war, very much understood as an entire church uh, that war was not the answer. But growing up, I had no vision of that. You know, the, it's not so much that I reject Methodism as that being a Quaker really speaks to my to my soul. That the silence, the interconnectedness of service. You know, there's a, a Quaker joke that's one of my favorite ones, which is the young man comes to the Quaker meeting, on program meeting the first time, and he sits and he kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen. He finally turns to the guy next to him and says, excuse me, sir, but, uh, when does the service again? And the old Quaker next to him turns to him and says, right after the worship ends. And that, to me, is being a Quaker in a nutshell. Earlier you were talking, J.E., about different people on the continuum, what they oppose in terms of war, you know, a particular war, or, or just where they are on the continuum. My understanding is that other countries define conscientious objection differently than we do. In the U.S., it's opposition to all wars. It's supposed to be unqualified, I think. How does that vary in other nations? Or, or what's the best, or shall we say, most liberal interpretation of conscientious objection that's been implemented in another country? The most liberal one that's on paper is in Great Britain, which provides for people to refuse to go to particular wars. It was actually recently invoked about, not this last summer, but summer before last, a, a soldier invoked it to avoid being deployed to Afghanistan, I believe. But he went before the commissioned era and he was turned down. But it does exist. Tony Blair, when he was prime minister, wanted it wiped out as a policy, but did not get his way. So allowing for people to refuse to participate in, in particular wars is actually appears to be a somewhat workable system. In Israel, of course, it's not on the books. However, there are yeshkabel, it is enough, soldiers, some of whom are professional, who refuse to fight in the occupied territories. You know, if there's bombing from Lebanon, they'll go into Lebanon and fight. But they won't agree to be sent into the occupied territory to fight. And it's not official, but it, it exists. In fact, a few years back, there was a program at Riverside Church in New York City that I was lucky enough to be part of. It was pretty thrilling to be standing where Martin Luther King gave his speech beyond Vietnam, which is, to me, I, I never can quote from because every sentence is better than the last one and better than the one before it simultaneously. That evolved into a truth commission, which finally gave a report in, I believe, 2010 to Congress asking for and supporting a bill that the uh, Center on Conscience and War has been working on for allowing for selective objection, among other things. It would result in a selective objector being booted out of the military, so it would limit the number of people who would be willing to, to do it, because if you are a career soldier, objecting to war, getting you out of the military is not a, an outcome you want. 
So it's actually more limited than the system in, in Great Britain. But it is an issue that has been taken up by the Christian Peace Witness, a, a group that was founded to witness against the war in Iraq and now has gone on to other things. And they are actually doing regional trainings. And I, I recommend people looking them up and finding out about them. It's their web pages, christianpeacewitness.org. They're doing some good work on that. They took conscience and war as their theme for 2011. You've done a lot of training yourself, and one of the places you trained was right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live. Of course, you've been all over the nation, and again, I think you've traveled even internationally for this. But when you came to Eau Claire, we had a special event, shall we say, when you went and talked to the media here. And I think it's such a delightful little story. I'm wondering if you wouldn't recite it while I'm recording so that I can carry it into perpetuity with me. Actually, it's a story I, I often tell. In Eau Claire, they have three radio stations in one building. Apparently, they're all owned by, by one company. One of them's a, a, a news talk show kind of station, and one of them's a rock and roll station, and I never went to the third station, but I was asked to come and speak on two of the stations, and I was on the, the talk radio station talking about how I was going to give a speech that night about conscientious objection to war and that the war was wrong, and it was a call-in show, and then the guy called in and started saying nasty things to me. And in particular, he said I should go back to France, which I personally always thought was an improvement over going back to Russia. But having never been from either place, I said that he could take this country away from me when he cried it from my dead cold hands. And his response was, well, I'd like to be the first in a long line of people who'd like to arrange that. And my response was, if it makes you feel big and strong to threaten a 55-year-old woman, come on ahead. And his response was, click, he hung up the phone. And so the broadcaster was going, well, John, I, we seem to have been cut off, but you can meet J.E. McNeil tonight at such and such a place at such and such a time where she'll be speaking. And we've got to conclude the show, and, and the, show, the show ended like that. So he turns off the radio and he, he says, so what are you going to do if he shows up? And I said, I'm going to look him straight in the eye and I'm going to say, call 911. <laughs> I'm, I'm brave but not stupid. So I went out into the hall and, and the radio executives were running up and down the hall going, that was real radio. That was real radio. <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was fun. That is not an uncommon response when you call people on being a bully like that. It's not the first time somebody threatened to beat me up or kill me or whatever. And I've always said, well, you know, if it makes you feel big and strong to, to kill an old lady, come on ahead. I don't think you fully capture the energy with which you did this. I, you're not one of these pussyfooting type of people. I mean, you've got a lot of energy to you, J.E., and I think that's one of the things that makes you particularly well-suited for the job that you've been doing for 12 years. You're not a shrinking violet, and I think most people think of flower-carrying conscience objectors or anti-war activists. One thing I remember is you rattling off your home address and said, come and get me. <laughs> Just, I, I think he was so stunned. He, he hadn't expected a peace activist to be that confrontational. Well, I've always believed that, you know, if you're going to stand up for something, you have to stand up for it. And sometimes, and one of the things that I talk about and have talked about many times over the year is that you know, being a conscientious objector of war, being a peace advocate, doesn't mean that I'm not willing to 
to die for my country. It means that I'm not willing to kill for my country. And that's the thing that, that I think a lot of people don't understand. I mean, including some peace activists. I think some peace activists think it means, you know, running away from conflict. The reality is, is that conflict is always with us. There are always going to be needs that, that conflict with each other. My need versus your need. My country's need versus your country's need. Those things are never going to go away. But what we have to do is find ways to productively deal with those conflicts rather than trying to pretend they don't exist. Trying saying, oh, we can't confront evil. We can't confront Osama bin Laden. We can't confront Saddam Hussein. We just, they're over there. Let them, let them do what they're going to do. I'm no more of an advocate of that than I am of an advocate of going over there and, and shooting them. You, you have to find a way to engage with things that we don't agree with and find a constructive solution. And that doesn't mean that by engaging, that no one's going to get hurt, no one's going to die. You know, I, often people will say to me, well, if we don't send over 100,000 armed people to Darfur, what should we do? And I said, well, let's send over 200,000 unarmed people. And they said, well, people will die. I said, yeah, you send over 100,000 armed people, people will die too. It isn't that there's a solution where no one dies, no one gets hurt. But that you try to find a constructive solution that moves us forward, moves us beyond the you shoot my brother and I shoot your brother system that we've had for so many centuries. And that's actually why uh, after I left the center, I, I started working on a master's at Eastern Mennonite University on conflict transformation, on peace building. And it's been it's been a very exciting program, and I'm I'm happy to do it. And I don't know where it's going to take me, but it does seem to be the next place to go. You've had these 12 years with the center, and so I thought maybe you'd already have the solution for the world since you're doing continuing studies about peace, conflict, resolution. Maybe you don't have the answer, but I did want to ask you, if someone gave J.E. McNeil the almighty power to do whatever you wanted about the U.S. military, what would you change, if anything? That's a hard one. I think that President Hubert Hoover, who was a Quaker, he had to face that, I think, when he rose to the presidency. What would you do? Do you have concrete ideas of what you would advocate for, lead in the direction of, if you were president, if you had the power somewhere? Well, actually, I have some ideas. I don't know how practical they are. I mean, obviously, I'm one person who has an imperfect knowledge of the world and, and the military, even with all my contacts over the years and all my conversations with people in the military, people very high in the military, some of them, and, and also people in government and internationally, but I would think that any change would have to be gradual, but that the very first change that you would have to do is to not assume that the military is the solution and that rather than sending in military, use increasingly the money for the military for foreign aid. You know, the average U.S. citizen says that we should keep our foreign aid about 10% of our budget or less. When, in fact, our foreign aid is less than 1%. It's a drop. And it's such a drop that when, during the tsunami, when countries with gross national products, you know, one-tenth of ours would be giving 20, 50, 100 times more than our country did to the tsunami relief, that it actually got so embarrassing that Congress had to go back and up what they were giving. We view ourselves as generous, as a generous nation, but we're actually a parsimonious nation. And while I think that 
some of that money from the military needs to go into strengthening our own infrastructure, our own needs at home. We should also be using a lot of that money to strengthen the needs of people around the world. It's when we realize in a clear way that we we are all in this together. This isn't a one room where only one of us can stand in and we want to lock the door and keep everybody out. The reality is, is that we're all in the same room. We're all on the same planet, and your needs affect me. Your needs, if you're needy enough, it, it hurts me, even though even if I think it doesn't, because it means you're going to be looking for a solution for your needs, and your solution may not be helpful to me. So if we work together to fulfill your needs, we can both move forward. We can both come out ahead. And that, to me, that's a lot of what peace building is about. It's about your needs, my needs, how can we meet both sets of needs in a constructive, imaginative way so that maybe it isn't going to be that we will never disagree or have competing needs again, but that we increase the likelihood that what happens is positive for the country, the world, moves forward, not backwards, and that we learn to share the ever-decreasing resources of the world together. Well said, J.E. A lot of us have come to respect you, J.E. McNeil, who's done this tremendous work that you've just finished with Center on Conscience and War. At other times, as I've said, you don't mince words very often. You're not afraid to take an unpopular position with respect to the general population or with respect to the peace crowd. At one point, you kind of crushed, I'm not intentionally, I'm sure, but you crushed my belief that if a draft were enacted, that we'd have strong, effective work against the war. That is my perspective still, that if a draft were enacted, that a lot of people who are just ignoring the war would have to sit up, pay attention, and say, we got to stop this war. And yet, you address the other side of that issue. I want to give you the forum to crush my hopes again. I'd be happy to, because I think that is really a ridiculous position, to not mince words. It's a selfish position, too, because it's generally held by people who are not in a position to be drafted. In fact, it very recently came up in Friends Journal, there was an essay in which an older Quaker said, we need a draft so that our children will will know and have to confront the issue of war. And I thought, well, isn't that convenient? Our children, who we know, odds are pretty good, they won't have to be drafted, that they will get a conscientious objector status because pretty much everybody knows that Quakers are conscientious objectors, and it's fairly easy for Quakers to get that status. So we want to draft somebody else's kids, kids who manage to avoid the recruiter, so that our kids can understand that war is wrong. We want somebody else's kids to go to war so that we can get other people to say war is wrong. And that is just such a selfish position to me. And aside from that, it doesn't even work. You know, people have this the myth. The myth is is that the anti-war movement was strong because of the draft and that the anti-war movement and people who opposed the draft stopped the war in Vietnam. But if you look at the sequence of events and you look at the facts, you'll realize that that's simply not true. First place, we had a draft since October 1940. The actual draft started in January 1941, but the system started October 1940 until 1976. How many wars did we have in between there? 
We had World War II. We had the Korean War. We had the Vietnam War. Did having the draft stop any of those wars? Stop us going into them? No, it didn't. In fact, having the draft allowed the military to say, we've got plenty of people, and if we don't have enough people, we can draft more people. We've got tons of people to be cannon fodder. We don't have to worry about if we're going to have enough people to, to recruit. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is Nixon believed, in fact, that the draft was the driver of the anti-war movement. And the reality was he got rid of the draft. He got rid of the draft before the end of the war in Vietnam. But the anti-war movement, you know, some people may have dropped out of it. Probably some did. But the anti-war movement was still clear. The war in Vietnam was wrong. It wasn't the people who were, quote, unquote, afraid of being drafted who drove the anti-war movement. And it isn't the people now who are afraid of being forced into the military that drives the anti-war movement. There is an anti-war movement, and it has, in many respects, been very strong. There was a huge outflow before the vote to support President Bush's invasion of Iraq. There was huge, there were phone calls and visits and telegrams and emails. You, If you were on the Hill that week before that vote, every office, the phones were ringing off the hook with constituents saying, don't invade Iraq, don't invade Iraq, don't vote to support the President on this. It's a huge outpouring, and many members of Congress just chose to ignore it. I was actually in Barbara Boxer's office one day, Senator from California, and her staff, and she was saying, oh, she's going to vote against it, and she went in and voted for it, even though 98% of the people who called her office opposed it. It isn't the anti-war movement. It is Congress that's the pivotal point here. And just because we march up and down Pennsylvania Avenue does not necessarily sway Congress. It's what we do in the ballot box that sways Congress. I want to take exception to one thing that you said, and it may be accurate as to the person who wrote the letter to Friends Journal, but if I would welcome at all the imposition of the draft, it would only be so that no one would be drafted. That would be my hope that people as a general will rise up, go to the ballot box and say, no, we're not going to vote for these pro-war people because our kids are all threatened. So I wouldn't say it would be selfish for a Quaker to think that activation of the draft would help us oppose the war. I want no one to be drafted. I want no one to die in war. My only hope would be that somehow the silent majority out there, the the people who haven't taken a strong verbal stance about the war and in the ballot box, that their consciences, their concerns, their self-interest would be activated so that this horrible destruction, both of our people, our resources, but of course our neighbors and all of our fellow humans on this world are being destroyed by this war. Almost anything we could do to stop it would be a good thing in my view. And your points still stand. And I think people deserve to research into this and sort this out. Oh, you and I can have a long argument over coffee sometime. Uh. <laughs> and now that you're no longer working with the Center on Conscience and War, maybe you have time for coffee, but I don't think you really do. I, I think that Jay McNeil doesn't go in just first gear. I think you're usually in overdrive doing massive changes for the world. I'm a classic Taipei personality, so I'm I'm going to school full-time, and I'm still very active with the Friends United meeting and with the Baltimore Yearly meeting, which are both Quaker groups, and I'm still very active with things in my neighborhood. So, yeah, I'm 
I have to sit down with my uh, date book every morning and figure out what I'm doing for the day. Well, I'm so glad that you took the time to write Piecework Quilt and assemble it. I can't tell you how thankful I am for your years of service with the Center on Conscience and War. You know, you really stand out for me as a person who's inspirational for me personally. So I thank you so much for joining me for the third time now for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for your sweet words. That was J.E. McNeil, author of the newly released book, Piecework Quilt, available at centeronconscience.org. Filled with powerful stories, deep thoughts about what really makes for peace, witness, and integrity. And drawing on J.E.'s 12 years as Executive Director of the Center on Conscience and War, it's well worth reading as one more way you can, as Pete Seeger sings, Study War No More. I ain't gonna study war no more, I ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more, I ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more, I'm gonna talk with the Prince of Peace down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I'm gonna talk with the Prince of Peace. Down by the riverside and study war no more. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.